Now after the Sabbath, towards the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for the fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed, and this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them, and when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, also to you which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved. If you hold fast the word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received. But Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, <clears throat> and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day. <clears throat> according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas. Then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than five hundred brethren on one time, most of whom remained until now. But some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James. And then to all the apostles. And and last of all, to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace towards me did not prove vain. But I laboured even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was... I or they, so they preached, and so they believed. Now in Christ, now if Christ is preached that He has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of death? But if there is no resurrection of death, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. More, moreover, we are even found to be false witness of God, because we testify against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise. 
if in fact the dead are not raised, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those who, are, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are all of men most we are we are of all men most to be pitied. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of dead of the dead. For as in Adam all died, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ, the first fruits from that those who are in our Christ, and his coming then comes to the end. When he hands over the kingdom of the God, God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all, un all authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that he will abolish is death, for he has put all things in subject under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is expected who put all things in subjection to him when all things are subjected to him. Then the Son himself also will be subjected to, to the one who subjects all things to him so that God may be, be all in all. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray one more time together. So this morning we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians 15, uh, verses 1 to 28. And as I mentioned at the outset, this morning is Resurrection Sunday. And it's something that we celebrate. We celebrate the resurrection today, but we celebrate the resurrection every Sunday when we come together. The reason that the church gathers on the first day of the week is because this is the day on which the Lord was raised from the dead. And if we truly have life in Christ, then we are called, we are commanded to live every day of our lives, every moment of our lives for Christ. On Friday, many of us came together to celebrate Christ's death. And I explained that it would seem strange to many that we would celebrate death, especially the death of the sinless God the Son. However, we saw on Friday that that death was actually a victory. It was victory over sin and over the powers of darkness. It was victory over our guilt. It was victory over Satan as he was crushed. The head of the serpent was crushed at Calvary. But if it had ended there, if there was no resurrection, there would be nothing to celebrate. Now we who are sitting here in this church 2,000 years after the events that we're remembering today have the advantage of hindsight. We know what happened because it has been written down for us in Holy Scripture. And we know it. We, we believe it by faith. What do you think was going on in the heads and the hearts of those 
first disciples on Saturday, that Saturday just prior to that Resurrection Sunday. They had followed Jesus for the past three years, even though he had warned them repeatedly that this was going to happen, they didn't understand. After Peter had confessed that Jesus is the Christ, Jesus had begun to taught them that the Christ must suffer many things and be killed. And then on the third day be raised, Matthew 16, 21. Sure, the disciples had seen the hatred of the scribes and Pharisees. They'd seen the fickle nature of the crowds. They knew that the Romans could be dangerous, but they never thought that it would come to this. They didn't believe that Jesus would actually be killed, and they didn't believe that he would be raised from the grave. They'd all promised that they were going to stand with him no matter what happened. But when it finally came down to it, every single one of them forsook Jesus. The fishermen went back to their nets. Jesus had told them that they would be fishers of men. But when they saw that this wasn't going to happen in their way, all they could do was was go back to what they had done previously. They had coveted thrones next to Jesus and an earthly kingdom. The shepherd had been struck and the sheep were scattered in fulfillment of Zechariah 13.7. But we mustn't be too hard on the disciples. But for the grace of God, we wouldn't have done any better. In fact, there are all kinds of people who deny the resurrection. Even those who claim to be Christians. It's bad enough to deny Jesus' bodily resurrection, but it's incomprehensible that somebody could do that while claiming to be a follower of Christ. I've read of several supposed Christians who are boldly declaring that they don't believe that Jesus actually rose from the grave. But Paul, in this passage, lists several witnesses to the resurrection, witnesses that prove they give incontrovertible evidence that Jesus did, in fact, Rise from the grave. So, first in verses 3 to 11, we're going to see the witnesses to the resurrection. Not only do we have a clear testimony of each of the four Gospels and Acts, but there is testimony to the Gospel throughout the Bible. In 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul lists several irrefutable witnesses. He reminds the Corinthians of the gospel that had been preached to them, the gospel that they had received and in which they stood and by which they were being saved, provided that they stood fast to what had been preached unless they believed in vain. And the concept of believing in vain is something that Paul returns to repeatedly in this passage and will provide the main focus for this message. Paul explains that he delivered to them what was in first importance, that which he had received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that, on the, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. 
You know, the Apostle Paul did not receive this message from men. He says in Galatians 1, 11 and 12, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached to me preached by me is not man's gospel, for I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ had actually taught the Apostle Paul the gospel. This began on the road to Damascus when Paul was headed to persecute the church and Jesus knocked him off his horse and sent him on a different mission. So the first witness that the Apostle Paul calls to the gospel and to the resurrection is Christ himself. We'll turn to this in a few moments. Three times in this verse, Paul says that this is in, in accordance with the Scriptures. In accordance with the Scriptures. David Garland explains that Christ died and that he was resurrected on the third day are facts, but their meaning is interpreted by the Scriptures. It is undeniably true that Christ was raised on the third day. No matter what heretics and blasphemers and false apostles and atheists say, Christ was raised from the grave. To believe anything else is willful ignorance that comes from a sinful heart. The scriptures are history, but they are his story. They reveal God's work in redemption history. In Acts 2.23, we read, This Jesus, delivered up to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. The resurrection was part of the plan too. Verse 24 says, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So the whole of the gospel was God's plan in eternity past. God was not surprised by sin. God knew full well what was going to happen in the garden. God wasn't surprised by the serpent. God wasn't surprised by Adam and Eve and the rebellion against him by choosing to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Even though God was not the author of these things, this was still part of his plan. Because it was only through the gospel that his glory could be revealed, his full glory. As I explained on, on Friday, that in the gospel, we see God's holiness and God's justice. And God's righteousness as he crushes his only son in our place. But also in the gospel, we see God's love and his grace and his mercy as he crushes his son in our place. But it was impossible for death to hold on to Jesus Christ. He was 
the sinless Son of God. He's the only one who ever lived who was not deserving of death. It was impossible for him to be held by it. And the Apostle Paul appeals to the testimony of Holy Scripture as evidence. But we need to remember that at this point, the New Testament did not exist. When Paul refers to the Scriptures here, he is referring to the Old Testament. We saw this on Friday in Isaiah chapter 53, which bears clear testimony to Christ's suffering for our sins. But the resurrection is presented plainly as well. In verse 10 of, of Isaiah 53, he prophesies, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. The days of the Son have been prolonged. In Psalm 1610, David declares, You will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Now, David here is a type of Christ. And he is saying, he is prophesying that God would vindicate the Son. In Hosea 6.2, we, we also see an allusion to the resurrection of Christ. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. So the Old Testament scriptures are the second witness that Paul lists for the proof of the resurrection. But when Paul shifts his focus from the death and the burial to the resurrection of Christ, he actually shifts the tense of the verb. And this is something that our, our English Bibles don't reveal. Paul moves here from the aorist to the perfect tense. The perfect tense refers to an action that was completed in the past, but has results that are ongoing to this present day. In other words, Jesus was raised in the past, but he continues to live in the present. And this has profound implications for all of us. It is this verb tense that Paul repeatedly uses to refer to Christ being raised. In verse 12, Christ is proclaimed as raised, perfect tense. In verse 15, he raised Christ, perfect tense. Christ has been raised, verse 20, perfect tense, and so on. But notice that this is also in the passive voice. The subject was being acted upon. God raised Christ. Now, usually this is taken to mean that the Father raised Christ, as in Galatians 1.1, God the Father who raised him from the dead, or in Ephesians 1.20, where the Father is declared to have worked mightily in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. However, we worship a triune God. God in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The Spirit also raised Jesus from the dead. Romans 8.11, Paul says, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. 
And Jesus also raised himself from the dead. He said in John 10, 17, and 18, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay my life down, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So we see there in the resurrection the action of the Father, the action of the Son, and the action of the Holy Spirit working in unison. In verse 5, the Apostle Paul lists Cephas, the twelve disciples together, 500 witnesses, then James, then all the apostles, and then finally Paul himself as witnesses. First Peter. This is the same Peter who quaked at the accusation of a servant girl. Now one who was bold enough to declare in front of the masses in Acts 2 who Jesus is and before the ruling council in Acts 4. And then we have the 12. This, this, is, this means that the apostles as a group, all of them were changed at the resurrection. Before the resurrection, remember, they didn't get it. They didn't understand, even though Jesus told them repeatedly what was going to happen. And they went back to what they'd been doing before. They gave up. But then after the resurrection, we see these men as bold, faithful witnesses. Each one of them suffering because of Christ. Each one of them, with the exception of John, who was martyred, each one of them, or sorry, John who was exiled, each one of them were martyred. Then the 500, these were, were now brothers in Christ, and most of them were alive at the time that Paul had written this letter. You could go and ask them personally, and they would tell you that they had seen Jesus risen from the grave. And James, this was the brother of Jesus who earlier in Christ's ministry hadn't believed in him. He thought that Jesus was mad. But James now transformed into an apostle. The same James who was the author of the book of James in our New Testament. He too was martyred. Apparently cast from the roof of the temple by the Pharisees. And when that didn't kill him, they stoned him to death. And then finally, Paul, who he says was one untimely born, the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because he persecuted the church. Here we see God's amazing grace, powerfully evident as Paul was transformed on the road to Damascus taken from his hellish errand and transformed from being a persecutor of the church to being a builder of the church. And Paul goes on to say that he worked harder than any of the other apostles. This sounds like, like the height of arrogance, if you take that on its own. But what he says is that it was God who was working through him. It was God who was doing the work. 
So whether they had heard from Paul or from one of the other disciples, or whether we sit here as as someone who has seen this from the scriptures, we believed. Now, in a Jewish court of law, a testimony is not granted as true unless it is attested unto by two or three witnesses. Here the Apostle Paul lists hundreds of witnesses, let alone the Scriptures themselves. Again, to deny this is the height of sinful and willful ignorance. Then in verses 12 to 19, we see that we see the vanity of life without the resurrection. The vanity of life without the resurrection. Despite Christ's resurrection and all these irrefutable witnesses to it, some still claimed and some still claim that there is no resurrection. They weren't just saying that Christ hadn't been raised. They say that no one has been raised and that no one will be raised. But Paul says if Christ hasn't been raised, it's all vanity. It's empty. In Ecclesiastes 1-2, the preacher says, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. If this isn't true, if Christ hasn't been raised from the grave, the gospel is vanity. Their faith is vanity. The preaching of the apostles is, is vanity. Our belief in Christ's death for our sins is vanity. Our death is vanity. Our life is vanity. Paul says that if Christ hasn't been raised, then his preaching is vanity. There is no point to the gospel at all if Christ hasn't been raised. The good news isn't good at all. The death of Christ would be the worst of all possible news because God the Son would have been defeated at the cross. If Christ hasn't been raised, faith is vanity. If the tomb is full, then faith is empty. Faith would be worthless. Our faith would be worthless. It would have no value. We'd be left with no hope. If Christ hasn't been raised, then the preaching of the apostles is vanity. They would be misrepresenting God. They would be blaspheming God. Nothing they say could be trusted. If one part of the scriptures is not true, then none of it has any bearing on our lives. People who ignore or reject part of God's word or twist it to say something that it doesn't say make themselves the standard above God's word. They're raising themselves up above God. If Christ has not been raised, our belief in Christ's death for our sins is vanity. If Christ has not been raised from the grave, then we are still in our sins because God was not satisfied with the sacrifice. Christ's death then did not pay for our sin. There's no point to any of this if Christ has not been raised. If Christ has not been raised, we might as well go home, go to bed, and pull the sheets up over our heads. If Christ has not been raised, our death 
is vanity. Those who have died have died forever. If Christ has not been raised, our life is vanity. Paul says in verse 19, If in Christ we hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Paul and the other apostles whose lives were poured out in the service of the gospel should be pitied if there's no resurrection. Their suffering, their deprivation, their imprisonment, their torture, everything they experienced would make them pitiable. As Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 8.15, there is nothing better to do than to eat, drink, and be merry. Isaiah 20.13 is similar. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. And Paul quotes this verse in 1 Corinthians 15.32. He says, What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Now there's a popular saying that conflates those two verses. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. But it's something that our culture totally misunderstands. They take it to mean, party it up, because there's no tomorrow. But Paul and Solomon and Isaiah were saying that if there is no eternal reality, you might as well live for today. But what an appropriate motto for our culture. Live for today. Do whatever you want today. Because when you die, you die. It's all over. There's no eternal reward. There's no eternal punishment. When you die, that's the end. But the really sad thing is that this attitude has rubbed off on many, even in the church. Now, of course, people would never acknowledge that. They would, they would say, no, I'm a good person. I don't cheat on my taxes. I give to the church. I'm a nice guy. But for many, church is no more than a social club, an activity that they do on Sunday mornings, a place to meet and to hang out with their friends. This is comfortable Christianity. It's one what, what one author called suburbianity. Suburbianity. And it's something completely foreign to the Bible. It's something completely foreign to true Christianity. True Christianity requires taking up your cross and following Jesus. As David Platt explains in his book, Follow Me, when Jesus gave the command, follow me, it wasn't an invitation to pray a prayer. It was a summon for these men to lose their lives. To lose their lives. And that command wasn't just for those first disciples. We are all to take up our cross and follow Jesus. 
If you look at Hebrews, the Hebrews Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11, we've got Abel and Enoch and Abraham and Sarah and Moses and Rahab. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Hebrews 11:13. Do you view yourself as a stranger and an exile on the earth? Are you looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the Father? We don't even need to look just in the Bible for this. Consider William Tyndale, burned at the stake for translating the Bible into English. David Brainerd, who poured out his life serving the Indians in North America. Jim Elliott, the missionary who was martyred in Ecuador in 1956. Saeed Abedini, the Iranian-American who is in jail in Iran at this very moment and will likely be killed because of his faith in Christ. Now, I'm not saying that we all have to go to the four, four corners of the earth as missionaries and be martyred. But are you living your life for Christ? Are you living your life for the sake of this life or for the next? Are you laying up treasures on earth or treasures in heaven? Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The way to know where your heart is is to ask yourself these questions. What do you spend most of the day thinking about? What do you spend most of the day thinking about? Are you focused on the Lord and eternal life with him? Are you calling to mind glorious biblical truths? And thinking primarily about these things while you work and while you do other things? Or are you focused instead on work and play? Ask yourself, what is the focus of my conversation? Is my conversation saturated with Scripture as I talk with other believers and as I reach out to unbelievers? Or instead, am I talking about weather and cars and sports and what I'm making for dinner tonight? Ask yourself, what are your goals? What are your goals? Are you living for biblical goals to live your life for the glory of God that everything you do and say and think would be for the glory of God? Now, I trust that net has caught all of us at some point. But what's the solution? What's the solution to this? Turn your Bible to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians 3, 1 to 4. If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. 
For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Live your life in relation to the eternal reality. Have you been raised with Christ? Seek Christ, not something, not as something that you will find later on, but as someone that you can know and treasure now and will treasure for all of eternity. The apostles and the saints in the Bible and the martyrs and the missionaries and the faithful men of, of men and women of God who have lived knew that the eternal reality was more real than the pleasant reality. They believed it, so they set their minds on the things that are above. They set their minds on Christ. They believed in Christ as the greatest treasure in the universe, and they saw that nothing, nothing, absolutely nothing in this life could compare to the reality of knowing Christ now and knowing Christ forevermore. But beloved, this doesn't come naturally to us. We are told to set our minds, to set our minds, to meditate on these things, to call these truths to mind, to see the temptations to focus on this life as that, as temptations. to see the things that God gives us to enjoy have their ultimate value not in the things themselves, but in the God who gives them as a token of his love for us. This is how we live our life for eternity. This is how we are transformed from people who live just like the rest of the world into those who live their lives for God. Jim Elliot knew what he was talking about when he declared, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. And then finally, in verses 20 to 28, we live because of the resurrection. We live because of the resurrection. Paul ends his musing about what if and then presents the present reality. In verse 20 he says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have, been fall, who have fallen asleep. Christ has been raised. Christ is alive. And then Paul goes on to contrast Adam with Jesus. Death came through Adam. Life comes through Christ. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all should be made alive. Verse 22. He speaks about these things as well in Romans 5, verses 12 to 21. Please turn with me there. Romans 12, verse 5. Sorry, Romans 5, verse 12. Sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. 
As one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience will many be made righteous. Are you here this morning as one of the many who have been made righteous? Are you here this morning as one who has been raised to new life in Christ? Beloved, Christ is the first fruits from the grave. He came first and we will follow. One day Christ will deliver the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed every rule and every authority and every power. Their defeat was already won at the cross, but it has not yet been finally completed. This will be accomplished at Christ's return. Until then, he reigns. Until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. The last enemy to be destroyed as death. And the resurrection is proof positive that death has already been defeated. It's already been defeated. And Christ is living proof of that fact. And so it's in the resurrection of Christ that we who are in Christ find our hope. Death will finally and fully be completed also at Christ's return at the last trumpet, when in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the, we will be changed. The trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, we shall all be changed. 1 Corinthians 15, 52. I quoted this verse earlier, Romans 8.11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Is that your hope here this morning? Is your hope in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Is your hope in your resurrection? May the Lord empower us to live our present lives in the reality of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When Christ has accomplished all of these things, he will assume his place before the Father. And we believe all these things. We are assured all of these things because of Christ. I pray that we would all be transformed into the image of the resurrected Christ as we behold the resurrected Christ. As the power, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead gives life to us. Because one day, we too will be raised from the dead. 
some to eternal life and some to eternal condemnation. I pray that we would all bear our souls before the Lord and ask him to reveal the reality of our spiritual our spiritual condition to us that those who have been raised from the grave, that those who are truly hoping in Christ will live a life that reflects that hope. And that those who are still dead in their sins and trespasses would repent of that sin and find new life in Christ. Let's pray together.